The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Jason Suddeth. I'm an elder here, and I'll be stepping in for Bill today, and I have the honor of coming before God's amazing word. And so let's pray, and let's ask for help as we approach it. Here I pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for its value, and thank you for its purpose. We ask now for your spirit to not just open our hearts, but to give us truth and help us to grasp it fully. Here I pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here, you know we've been following the life of David. If you haven't, um, we've been doing this, I think we're about five weeks into this study on the life of David, and we find him at a really rough moment. So when we walk into David's life today, he has to be feeling a little bit depleted. It reminds me of a story. There's a man named Roy Sullivan. It's a real story. He uh, was a park ranger at a national park in Shenandoah Valley uh, in Virginia. And Roy Sullivan, his nickname, just so you know, was Human Lightning Rod, all right? Not a good nickname. There's no way that could be a positive thing. I can't think even if it's not figurative. I can't see that being a good thing. He was struck during his life seven verified times by lightning. Seven. The first one will make sense to you. He was in a fire watch stand, like a tall building made of wood, up in the air above the tree line during a lightning storm. That's on you, right? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, that's... Sorry, that happens. The second one, he was driving his car with the window down. A storm passed by. It hit like a power box, ricocheted off the power box, hit him inside of his truck, inside of his car. Now you've got to start wondering, okay? You've got to start wondering. So following this, he gets hit a few more times. They're a little more regular style lightning strikes. Um, (laughs) He started to lose it a little bit. I'm going to be honest. He started to claim that clouds followed him. When storms would come, and this is, I'm not going to say my favorite because it's just a terrible thing to say. Uh, But when storms would come, he would lay down in his truck on the bed. He had one of those old trucks that had the bed sort of across. And he'd wait for the storm to pass. His fourth lightning strike, or first fourth hit, he was laying in his bed. The storm passes. He gets out to walk into the the like sheriff like the the place and he gets hit when he gets out of the car <laughs> these are verified this isn't just some crazy guy's story like people are finding him with like his hat on fire if you want to see his hat you can go to the smithsonian they have them and they're burned up and it's it's real he starts carrying water around and it got to the point where no one wanted to stand near him <laughs> you would probably be i wouldn't stand near him now david has to feel this way a little bit David has been given this amazing promise by God. He has, he's told he's going to be the next king, and he's killed Goliath, but yet Saul, if you've been here, hates him and wants to kill him, and he has multiple times spared Saul's life, but Saul is still chasing him around the country. David has spent an extended period of time living in caves with his men, sleeping outside on like a permanent non-fun camping trip, and you can't tell him he's actually sleeping. Every moment in the night, Every noise has to make him think, is that Saul? Is that Saul? He hasn't seen his family. He hasn't been in his own bed. He has to be at this point thinking, I'm totally out of hope. God, you said, and then why am I sleeping on a rock in a cave? And that's where we find David today. And we're going to find David does what probably most of us would do. He starts to come up with his own plan. 
he says, well, if this isn't going to work out God's way, I'm going to come up with my plan. And so here's what we're going to see today as we look at, we look at four chapters. We're going to fly through a bunch of scripture. Here's what we're going to see as we look through these four chapters. Here's the first thing. We often come up with a plan to bring peace into our life. We often try to come up with our own plan to bring peace in our life. Second thing we're going to see out of it is when we come up with these plans instead of peace, typically it just brings consequence. And then finally at the end, what we're going to see is that we have such a faithful God, even when we have tried to follow our own plan, He remains faithful to His. So open up your Bibles, if you have them with me, to 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. And here's where we find David. 1 Samuel 27.1 says this. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Basically means one day Saul's going to get me. And this phrase, here's the big key phrase. There is nothing better for me... Remember that phrase, there's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of looking for me or seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David has this promise from God. You will be the king. Saul will not kill you. I got you. It's going to happen. Just wait on it. It's going to happen. But he gets, he's out of hope, essentially. It's He's been living in caves, and he just says, you know what? There is nothing better for me. The NIV puts it this way. The NIV says here that he says, the best thing I can do. Now, catch this. There's nothing inherently wrong with that statement. In fact, most of the time when we say the best thing I can do, that sounds like someone saying the wisest choice for me is. We live a life of making the best choice we can given the circumstances that we are in. That, it's nothing inherently wrong with the statement itself. But here's what you have to tag on to it. Here's what David has forgotten in this. This is what David should have said. The best thing I can do, knowing who God is and what he has called me to do, is followed from there. See, David has forgotten a couple of things. He's forgotten what God has told him he would do. He's forgotten the promises of God. And honestly, what he's doing is questioning the character of God. If God said he would do it, then he would do it. That's a character question. So this sermon today, or this talk today, it's not an anti-wisdom talk. It's not saying, hey, if you're making choices in your life and God hasn't put it spelled out in the clouds, move to Columbia, South Carolina. It's not saying, well, that's not a good choice. You haven't really sought God. But what I would tell you in this, as we're making choices, as we're doing what we think is wise, the only way to find wisdom is to say, the best thing I can do knowing who God is and what he has called me to do. That's the difference between wisdom and foolishness. People make foolish decisions because they forget who God is, and they ignore what God has called them to do, but they still think it's the best thing that they can do. So we find David making a choice here. Some commentators, there's a bunch of disagreement over right or wrong in this moment, but really he's forgotten the promises of God. And we do the same thing. Think about how, much, how many times this week did you try to figure life out? How many times this week did you come to a choice or to a tough moment and you said, if I could just get a few minutes to sit down and think about it, I could figure it out. Maybe it's your finances. 
Maybe things aren't good right now. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you said, you know what? If we just, if we just, I can figure this out. I can fix my marriage. Here's what I'll do. I, I'm a guy. I know how to fix things. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll fix this marriage. And you said, I can do this. What, if I just bring flowers home tonight, and I'll just be nicer, or I'll just think of her. We live constantly trying to make choices to fix plans to fix the things in our life. How many of your times this week when you were approached with something difficult did you approach it this way? I think this is the best thing I can do because I know God has told me this is who he is and I know he's told me this is who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. Do you see the difference there? That's wisdom. David has not made this choice from a place of wisdom. And really what he's made it from is a place of arrogance. And what we're saying is, I can figure it out. The underlining tone at the very bottom of that is actually your own greatness. If you can fix things, then the credit goes to you. So David's got a plan. Here's the plan. You want to hear the plan? Look down to verse 2 with me. David says, how can I fix things? I just, he's going to kill me. I got to do this. Here's the plan. Verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his wives. I go down to verse 4. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So the plan's working. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in a royal city with you? So Achish that day, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag, that's the city name, Therefore, Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So we find David, and he comes up with a plan, and it's a good plan. It's a smart plan from every earthly perspective. He knows, I'm going to go to the Philistines. I'm going to live in their land, and then Saul can't chase me in their land, or either maybe he'll think I'm still in Israel, and he'll be going around in circles looking for me till he gets tired and quit, and I'll be fine. So he goes there, and he's essentially a servant, but it's more like a bodyguard. Uh, in a minute, that'll make more sense. For this young king, more like a prince in, uh, in the Philistines. And so he works for this prince there, and he says, hey, prince, you have this royal, beautiful city where you could look at and see exactly what I'm doing. Um, you don't want me here. Put me out in the country. I'm a servant. You don't want to deal with me every day. Let me go be your bodyguard out in the servant, and I'll keep the people from raiding. I got you. And Achish says, sure. And so now David is given a city where he can basically run things how he wants to run. But not only that, his men have homes and beds. And did you catch who gets to move in with them? You might catch it. Well, who was it? Their families, his, their wives, their kids. He gets this word that we all love so deeply, normalcy. He can go to bed at night beside his wife. Their kids are running around. His men can eat meals that they don't have to cook on a campfire. And he goes, ah, oh, this is a great plan. And all he has to do is be the bodyguard for this king. It sounds like he's got the plan right. But if you think about it, the decision was made from a place of complete faithlessness and ignoring the promises of God. We know what's coming. What's coming is consequence. Look to chapter 28. Look to 1 and 2. So David has to start feeling comfortable. Maybe he's sleeping well at night. Um, I, I know whenever I'm, when things aren't right in life, 
I have this physical consequence. I get heartburn. I never get heartburn in life. And like, that's how I know I'm stressed out. Like sometimes I'm stressed out and I don't know it. And then I get heartburn. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually stressed out over this. Um, and he has to probably, if this were me, the heartburn would have gone away. He would have started feeling good. He might be sleeping a little bit better. And he has to think my plan has worked. And then 28 verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, I, I want you to imagine how terrifying this statement would have been to David. <laughs> you must understand, and catch, catch the tone how he says this. You must understand that you and your army will accompany me. Do you hear a lot of option in there? There's not a lot of, hey, David, it would be great if you could come and do this. You've probably heard this from your boss. Like, sometimes your boss says, you don't understand. We will have this done. This is one of those, David, you don't understand. You and your army, you're coming with me. So think of, David's got basically three options here, right? Here's option number one. He looks at Achish and says, I can never fight against the people of God. That's my family. That's my brotherhood. I'm your slave, but I will never fight against them. And if he follows option number one, what probably happens? Okay, you're dead then. And he's done. Like, he kills David on the spot. Probably he sends people, says, oh, you don't want to fight for us? We'll wipe you out in your home of Ziklag, too. We'll take your family out while we're at it. He's not just going to let them keep Ziklag and live there peacefully and kill David. So he knows, if I say no, I'm probably dead. My family's probably dead. But if he says yes, if he says yes, I will fight. And actually, that's what he says, believe it or not. Uh, I will fight. And I will fight for you, and you'll see how great job I'm doing. And he goes into war, and he fights with, with the Philistines. If he wins the battle, and they wipe out Saul, do you think the Israelites are going to let him walk back in and become the king of the country? He just murdered their troops on the field. He's a traitor. He will never be able to go home again. And it would be even worse if they lost the battle, if they lose to the Israelites, and David is taken to Saul and dragged before Saul. And Saul says, I knew it. I knew you were a traitor. I knew you wanted to kill me. All this time I've known it. Kill him. Go to Ziklag. Kill his family. They're done. And then there's a third option, right? And that's what most commentators think he was going to do. But I'll tell you this. How could we fully know? They think he was going to do this. They think he said, because he does say yes in the scripture, says, I will battle for you. They think he was going to get into the battle. When the battle started, that he would turn on the Philistines and try to kill the Philistines and win the battle for Israel. But think about how nervous that must have been. He's behind Emily, enemy, not Emily's lines, enemy lines. Emily was a Philistine. I don't want to get into it. Um, so he's behind enemy lines, and there's 600 total men. 600, that's what he's got. There's thousands of Philistines, thousands of them. And as soon as he starts fighting them, he's probably going to get wiped out. And you know when that's done, they're going to go back to Ziklag and wipe his family out. Here's what I'm telling you. David can't see any way through where he survives or his family survives unless things work out exactly right. I cannot tell you the tension that must have lived in this man's heart. And I'm telling you, as he got to the bottom of his plan, and you know this is true from your own experience— 
We make our plans. I'm a to-do list person. I love my to-do list. Every Monday, there's a new to-do list, and I don't cross things out. I highlight them out so I can celebrate later in the week what I've highlighted off of my to-do list. I love to-do lists. I love plans. But you know when we make plans in life, so often we think, this will give me rest. This will give me peace. And so many of the times, our fixes leave us with more questions and more fear and more brokenness. See, the reality of all of this is there is no plan that brings peace. Do we get that? Even when it works, it tends to bring more questions. Uh, when we moved here, we were here for eight years. Um, I was here for eight years. We moved to Charleston for three, and when we came back, we put our house on the market, and praise God for this. Some of you have had long periods of time where it's hard to sell a house. Our house sold in a day. All right. Someone came, the first person came, they wanted the house, they put an offer, we took the offer on the house, it sold in a day. The only problem is, uh, Allison was like three months pregnant, and they wanted the house, they had to be in by June 1st. Our son's birth, you know, date, expected birth date was June 1st. So we're like, okay, well we're going to do it, we'll make it, we'll pack ahead of time. So we're finishing packing the house, Allison goes into labor, she has the baby June uh, no, they wanted June 4th, I'm sorry. So they, she has the baby June 2nd. I should know my child's birth, right? <laughs> There's only two of them. It's not like I'm a Langhouse and I'm like 40 of them. Um, who's counting? All right, so. Anyway, so we've got June 2nd. She goes into labor. She has the baby. Praise the Lord why it is healthy and happy. I, I'm there that afternoon. I wake up the next morning. I go meet the movers. We pack our house. We move everything into storage June 3rd. Then, praise God, there's a family in the school I was working at, at the time because it was rentals were really expensive, and we couldn't be in our house for at least another month that let us live in their basement. So we go home from the hospital, and we live in a basement with my two-year-old, my newborn, and my wife, and our seven dogs. I'm just kidding. I don't have any dogs. That's a lie. It's an outright lie. I just thought it would make it sound tougher. Um, so we're living in this basement, and it's a great basement. They were wonderful people to us. We praise God for their ministry in our life. But I just wanted out of the basement. And then Nick Kristoff, I'm not sure if he's here today, helped me with everything and did a phenomenal job. And he was helping keeping me patient through the process of waiting through loans and the banks and all these sort of things that you have to go through. And we're giving a closing date. I think it was July 4th, if I remember the exact, no, July 5th, because it was the first day after the break, the closing date. And I get a call from Nick the day before we're supposed to close, and he says, oh man, the bank messed something up, there's a paperwork issue, it's going to be four more days. I lost it a little bit. I called back later and apologized to Nick, we're still friends, we worked through it. Um, And I just remember being so mad. Like, so mad because I'm in this stupid basement and, like, I just, like, I just want to put my kids in a room. So, three days later, a day before we're supposed to close the next time, I get a call and it's from the owner of the house. And it's a friend of mine. And he says, Jason, first of all, everything's okay. Which no good phone call ever. First of all, everything's okay. I got you tickets to the final four. Um, That never happens. And so, I'm like, what's wrong? He goes, the house was hit by lightning awesome. There was a small fire in the attic. Awesome. He goes, I put it out. And he did. He was, he climbed in the attic and put it out. He's just that guy. Uh, but it was like a really super small, he's like, you could sell, it's just like a little one burnt piece of wood. 
And he goes, the gas is off. The electricity's working for the most part. We got someone from SCNG coming out to check everything out. So I'm like, okay, okay, it'll be fine. I get a call the next morning. Yeah, we're good. We're still going to close today. Just one thing you should know. The lightning strike punctured a hole in one of the gas lines in the attic. And he said, thankfully, we had it turned off after the lightning hit. His wife is a very wise woman. Uh, They turned off the gas when the lightning hit the house. He was there patching walls and painting, fixing things up because we closed the next day. Had we closed on the original time frame that I so desperately wanted, we would have come, unloaded all of our stuff into that home, and then our plan, because we had a great plan, was to pack up the house, and then we were all going to drive to Columbia, South Carolina to see my family and just leave the house empty. The house would have burnt to the ground. It would have been gone with all of my worldly possessions. And in my plan, in my genius plan, it should be gone. But that wasn't God's plan. Now, I'm not saying that every time God will work things out and never let your house burn down. That's not true. I just know of a family this week that lost everything in a house fire. But what it is to say is we have a God who has a plan. And we, when we live in this plan-making mindset where we have to be in control of everything that happens, we miss the character of God that he is in control. And if his plan is either tragedy in our life or taking a loved one home, that plan is good. And if his plan is your house not burning down, and so that he could... Do you really think God said, Jason needs his stuff? He, that old baseball card collection is worth about $8 total. He's got to have that. Like, he's got to have that in this life. That's not it. You know what he wanted? He wanted me to sit back and just revel in his glory and sit back and realize, why don't I trust him when he has every... That's the only reason my house didn't burn down. It's just a building with some stuff in it. What was at battle to be proven was the glory and the goodness of God. Do you see that? If bad things come your way, it's for the glory and goodness of God to be seen. If God rescues you from the pit of despair, it's for the glory and the goodness of God to be seen. So David, in this moment, who's made this bad choice, who's not in the best place, his stomach is wrenched, he doesn't know what to do. It's the glory of God that needs to be seen. And God says, here, let's show it to you. Jump down with me. We're going to go all the way down to chapter 29. We're going to go down to chapter 29. So now the Philistines, this is 29 verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped in the spring in Jezreel, and the Lord of the Philistines were passing by in their hundreds and by their thousands. And David and his men were passing by on the rear with Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said, this is exactly what you would expect them to say, "Uh, what are those Hebrews doing here? Aren't we we killing them? Like, what's happening here? uh, and And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul? Which, I don't know why he thought that would be a helpful phrase. King of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. 
Oh, well, that's a convincing argument, right? Hey, I've had him for a few years. He's been really good to me. You're going to like this, David. Yeah, he's, he was the servant of Saul. Yeah, he killed Goliath and wiped out a bunch of our people. Yeah, but he's been really good to me. And this is what they said back to him. This is actually really wi- a lot of wisdom for the Philistines. Verse 4, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to them, Send this man back that he may return to his place that you have assigned him, he shall not go down with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his lord, to Saul? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not the David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They're like, are you serious? Do Do you know who that guy is? What's the best way to make Saul happy with him again? He walks in with a literally, this is what they said, with a couple of heads of ours sitting on there and be like, hey man, how you doing, Saul? Been a while. I'm for you. Like, that's going to be it. They're like, are you kidding me? He's going to turn on us. This is actually really wise. Philistines were not known for their wisdom or their culture. But in this moment, and I think this is really interesting little minor side point here, God uses ungodly men for a very godly purpose, doesn't he? He didn't let, David didn't fix this. God used these men who want to kill his people to fix this problem. God used ungodly men for a very godly purpose. And so Achish goes to David and says, bud, you got to go. You don't want to fight. Don't fight this. Just go home. So David marches home. And here's where we get the great part of this story. He marches 50 miles home. All the battle gear, all 600 men back all marching home, and as they get close to Ziklag, thinking, well, I guess we still have Ziklag, they start to smell smoke. Maybe they saw it first. I'm not really sure. I guess it kind of depends on the weather and the wind. But the closer they get to Ziklag, they see fire. Not a small fire. The city is burning to the ground. And as they get closer and closer to the city, you can't tell me these men, even though they've marched 50 miles, who know their wives and their children are back in that city, must have gone out into a full-scale, desperate, panicked sprint into the city. And as they ran around the city, as they were running around looking for these things, here's what it says in chapter 30. Now David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided against the Negev, against the Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive to the men and the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned and their wives and daughters taken captive. How do you feel in that moment as you're panicked, running around, desperately trying to find your kids, and there's not a body alive or dead anywhere to be found? What do you do? You know what you do. You stop, you fall to your knees, and you weep. That's exactly what they did. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices, and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. In the ashes of every plan, he sits there. And he has no more strength left in his body, but it's going to get worse. Because we all know when you're mourning after the weeping, what emotion often follows? When the crying doesn't fix it, 
what comes next? Anger, right? Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and his daughters. Can you imagine? You did, you brought us here. My family was fine in Israel. I followed you, I trusted you, and they're gone. Can you imagine? He can, you can imagine sitting there as David and seeing the men sort of like turning sideways and like talking to each other and having whispered conversations around him that he knows is about him. And he sits there and he's looking at his broken plan on the ground and it's done and there's nowhere to go. And then now we come to why David is actually a man after God's own heart, not because of his plan making, but at the bottom of everything, this is what he does. Look at verse 6, the last line. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When all was lost, he finally, instead of looking at himself, he starts to look up. And then jump down to verse 8 because it's really clear here. And David, I love this, compare this to that first line we had that at the very, at the very beginning. Compare it to this. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He, God, answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. For the first time, David stops thinking, What's the best thing I can do? Starts remembering who God is, and then starts looking for God's plan in all of this. And if you read the rest of the story, they overtake, they find the Amalekites pretty miraculously. They find where they are. They wipe out the people who took their family, and not a one of the wives or the children are harmed or killed. And at the end of it, David must go, oh my gosh, of course. God has a plan for me. He promised me this. God always delivers on his promises. Even when I was unfaithful, he was faithful. And in these four chapters, David walks back into remembering not just God's promises, but God's character to keep his own promises. And David must just go, of course. And folks, it's the same thing for us today. It's the exact same thing we have to do. I'm always reminded, there's this story I heard a, a million times in churches like this, of the story of Horatio Spofford. Um, he was, you've probably heard this story, I think we have a, a picture of him. He was, a, uh, he was from, born in 1828, His, he came from a rich political family, he was a lawyer, and he moved to Chicago, Illinois uh, in his 30s, and started a massive law practice. He bought up tons of property in the mid-1800s, and became a very wealthy man, and he married this woman he met that he was in love with for years, and she finally married him. Her name was Anna. And then in 1871, there was a fire in Chicago, the Great Chicago Fire. And you see a, a picture of the map there. It burned miles of Chicago, much of that area owned by Horatio Spofford. He went from being wildly wealthy to almost bankrupt in three days. And instead of throwing a pity party, he used his money and his property to take care of those who had been made homeless by this. Now, why would he do this? One of the reasons was he was at a 
a Presbyterian church. It's called Fullerton Presbyterian Church. It's still there in Chicago. It goes by a different name. It's very different theologically now. But he was at Fullerton Presbyterian Church in Chicago, and he was an elder at that church. And he wanted to serve even though he had walked through hard times because he knew the character of God. So over the next two years, he recovered economically. He actually was really good friends. You may know this name, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was, uh, he's like Billy Graham, but of the 1800s, basically. I mean, that's the best comparison I can think of on it. Um, And D.L. Moody was a friend of his and said, hey, please come with us. D.L. Moody was going ahead. He was going to preach in England, a series of sermons over in England. And he invited Horatio and his family to come just be with them over there. So they said yes. And in 1873, when they were about to leave, uh, the economy collapsed in the United States, kind of like a 2008, a little more localized, I think, to the Chicago area, if I understand it. And he had a lot of business dealings, so he told his wife and his four girls, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 2-year-old, go ahead, I'll get over there when I can, let me finish the business back here. And they got on a boat out of New York City, and when they were getting close to England, the boat was struck by a British ship leaving. And in 12 minutes, 12 minutes, that boat went from being struck to being completely underwater. 12 minutes. You can imagine there was absolute panic on the boat. Most of the uh, rescue, most of the boats to escape were not used. Most of them were never launched. In fact, almost every one that was launched was launched by crew members full of crew members. And almost every passenger on the boat went down in 12 minutes. We're told by stories Anna wrote later that she took her four girls, they got on the deck of the boat, they knelt, and they prayed. And how she tells the story, if you want to cry later, you go home and read it, her girls encouraged her it was going to be all right. And when the boat hit the water, she had her little one in her arms and was holding the other ones kind of together. She lost grip of all of them. And all four girls were gone. And when she came up, she found a piece of wreckage. She held on, and a tugboat came by and rescued her. And when she got to England, news of this came out immediately, but Horatio would have had no clue his wife survived or what happened. He could only assume they were all dead. He received this telegram. Saved alone, what shall I do? So he got on a boat. He did what I would have done. He got on a boat and went to go get his wife. And when they got close, the captain, he had the captain come tell him. So the story goes. His, a daughter he had led her down the road has told us these stories through the years. When, he got, when the boat got close to where the spot was, where it went down, the other boat sank, the captain came and got Horatio and said, we're, we're there. And he went out on the deck of the boat and he wrote this song above the burial spot of his kids, essentially. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, their trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. And then this last stanza, my sin, oh the bliss, I love that word there, of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, 
It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This man must have felt like lightning bolt after lightning bolt after lightning bolt was going to knock him down. And yet this is the words he can write when he sees the character of God and God's plan in it. I wish I could end the sermon right there, but I can't. That was my plan, because we have plans. I found this example. I've heard pastors preach this nine trillion times. You've heard the story nine trillion times. If you want to make people in the congregation tear up a little bit, you, tear, you tell this story right here, because it's an awful story, and this hymn is so beautiful. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. But I made the mistake of researching a little further, and I looked at the rest of his life. In the 1880s, he had three more kids, two girls and a boy. And when his, when his boy turned three, he got sick, and he died. And his Presbyterian church, gosh, it just makes me angry, told him he was under divine retribution for some sort of evil he must have done in his life. It just makes me angry. self-righteousness of that. Some of you in this room have lost children, and you know how that feels. We've all lost loved ones, and we know how that feels. And to have these people at the center of the bastion of hope tell you, what have you done wrong? Do you hear what they're really saying there? It hasn't happened to me, so I'm good. When bad things come in life, it's because you've done something. And listen, I'm smart, I'm good, I'm holy, so God's not letting that happen to me. He's letting it happen to you. Do you know what's at the bottom of that? It's self-righteousness. It's arrogance. It's the same thing every human has battled for all of time, which is to say, I am good enough God should treat me well. And they looked at Horatio Spofford and they said, ah, you're just not good enough. They shipwrecked him. I'm sorry, that unintentional pun. They, they shipwrecked his faith. He didn't leave Christianity, but what he essentially did is he fell into this theology called universalism, which is this theology of basically hope. But it's hope in almost nothing. Hope that God's just going to make everything all right. And he started this commune that was borderline a cult because what he saw in the church, instead of seeing people who said, we know God has a plan for you, instead of seeing people who looked at his son and saying, he's in the presence of the Savior, they said, your son is punished because of you. They got the character and the plan of God wrong. It is God's plan for us to leave this world, right? Is it a good thing that we leave this world? It's an amazing thing that we leave the world because the character of God says, I will bring you home in Christ Jesus. Death is not a punishment in the sense of if we're in Christ, it's a consequence of sin, but it's not, it's not an eternal punishment because Christ has taken the eternal punishment of death. And this church looked at this man, and in their self-righteousness, they said, oh, you got it. See, they, that church didn't have hope. Hope is not looking at your circumstances and thinking you can fix it. It's not thinking things will work out because you're good enough. 
It's not thinking things are going to go well because you deserve it. That's called arrogance. That's called foolishness. That's called pride. That's not hope. This is what hope is. Hope is looking at the character of God and believing He will not let you go and that His plan is good and is right. That's hope. And this place, this place, this church right here, we need to be the center of hope on this island. There are hopeless people, no matter how wealthy they are, who've made plans and their lives have crumbled. If they are poor and need, no matter where they are, there are people who need hope. And this church needs to be a place where they can come and find hope. Not answers, not fixes, hope in who God is and what God will do. I don't know what's going to happen to you this week, but I know who controls it. And if you walk out of this room knowing who can control it and trusting his character, it doesn't matter what happens this week. Let's pray. Lord, I confess, I have so many plans. I have plans for this afternoon. I have things I'm telling you that I want to happen today and this week. But my hope needs to be in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend, but only lean on Jesus' name. Father, we need you, whether it be through blessing or whether it be through pain, to show our hearts that you are worthy of our greatest hopes. And you hear me pray. Amen.